Welcome to Coffee and Circuses. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling episode 22. Man, I'm really racking up these Taylor Swift references now. This week I'm joined by Adam Fosey from the University of Kent, whose book Becoming a Woman and Mother in Greco-Roman Egypt, which is based on her PhD thesis, has just been published. As Ada details today, by using personal letters written on papyri, she was able to get a real insight into the everyday lives of women in ancient Egypt, including how menstruation was perceived, how attitudes towards marriage shifted over time, and the harsh realities of how unwanted children were abandoned. We also chat about breaking down boundaries between historic periods which are often studied separately, such as Pharaonic and Greco-Roman Egypt, how she was inspired to explore this topic when digging in the Fayum region in Egypt, and her surprise at the massive reaction to her Women in Antiquity Facebook page and group, which today has over 6,500 followers. As always, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and Spotify, and if you so wish, you can find me on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh. So, as always, thank you for joining me, and on to the show. going with the house moving into the house well it's going well thank you it was uh, the house that we really wanted and so it was uh, really nice to just to be able to move into it and uh, we bought uh, a new, new furniture I even uh, uh, assembled my own bed oh, <laughs> for nice. the first time <laughs> so yes I thought I had no practical skills at all <laughs> <laughs> showed that I did <laughs> and um Yes, so it's it's really, and we, we decorated all the rooms and uh, I finally realized my dreams of uh, putting Pompeian red in uh, the dining oh, room. Nice. <laughs> I don't know whether it was a wise choice, but uh, I like it for now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's it's going very well, thank you. Yeah, so I think that uh, we will enjoy the new place. When uh, when it will be properly furnished, yeah, we will enjoy it even more, but yes. Oh, that's good. Moving <laughs> is just one of those stressful things you can ever do. Yes. Well, I suppose home buying to begin with is stressful and then moving all the stuff in and and redecorating hey do you do you speak to charlie much the it guy for second charlie who does it really tall. yes yes he's uh he's been redecorating his house recently yes he uh, told me yeah, actually yes. apparently like for months on end they've been redecorating the ground floor so everything is upstairs at the moment he's just like yes. i'm so sick of it he's like yes and he told me that uh, for a while he was without a wall <laughs> or yeah, something like yeah. that so well for a short period of time last yeah. year so yeah i mean yes it's very disruptive but at the same time it's exciting and you get the chance to throw away a lot of stuff and mm. give it to charities and declutter your house so mm. we even watched uh, Marie Kondo on Netflix oh. to get some advice but then we decided that it was uh, it was making us too anxious <laughs> <laughs> so we just decided not to follow the advice too much otherwise we would have ended up putting everything in tiny boxes as she yeah. does so yeah that, that's a bit extreme so we aim to be a bit more uh, a bit tidier but not uh, like her yeah. <laughs> not OCD <laughs> really does Michael actually own a lot of Star Wars stuff? Uh, yes, he does. Does he? Just yeah. did. Did he contemplate getting rid of it at all? Just because I have loads of Star Wars toys from when I was younger, and I still can't part with them. <laughs> no, it doesn't have that much. I think it's uh, it can still be integrated uh, yeah, in the okay. house. And yeah, it's it's um, no, not too much actually. Yeah. Yeah. But there are lots of things in his house in Colchester. 
Uh, okay. so oh, that's the thing. The, little... that's the, the <laughs> yeah. benefits of parents. They yes. just they, everything stays with them. <laughs> exactly. Well, one one day we will bring them. Uh, maybe mm. yeah, we'll see. Brilliant. <laughs> Together, I can bring my toys around and play. <laughs> 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 it's, but it's also good because when we go to Colchester, we go back to Michael's childhood, so we start playing with Star Wars yeah. figurines. So <laughs> it, it's cool. Yeah, to take things out, Lego um, oh, as nice. well. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah, it's very good. But we have uh, some uh, Rogue One Lego. Oh, wow. Yes, at home. So, yeah. When we want to play, we have things to play with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, yeah, the book. The book is now out. Yes. Well, first of all, we'll start with what's the book about? So, the title is uh, Becoming a Woman and Mother in Greco-Roman Egypt. And uh, so the book is about women and children in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt. And uh, it's about, uh, I would say, the simple definition is about uh, their everyday life. Mm. So I try to touch on many aspects of their everyday life. But uh, I would say that the the theme, the common theme of the book is uh, also women's uh, reproduction and uh, how uh, women's body and especially the reproductive phases of uh, of women are perceived by society. So I studied the coming of age and puberty for girls uh, and all the rituals associated with the coming of age, um, then the pregnancy and childbirth, and uh, then also some aspects that which are really not uh, really understudied, at least for Greco-Roman Egypt, but also for other societies as well, which are, for example, uh, how society perceives the menstruation. Mm. So all the uh, aspects of pollution uh, and uh, rituals uh, related to uh, the access to temples, for example. So whether women could actually enter temples during menstruation. And... Uh, the similarities between menstruation and childbirth in terms of uh, pollution and uh, purification, uh, both in, uh, in, in religious uh, rituals. So, for example, the access to temples uh, in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt seems to have been denied to women who were menstruating and also women who had just uh, given birth and women who had just had a, a miscarriage, for example. So I'm trying to put together all of these elements and these similarities that have never really been investigated together. And uh, through all of these studies, I also see how Greco-Roman Egypt is a sort of a mix of different cultures. Uh, and uh, you have a sort of a change in... Um, uh, beliefs and uh, cultural perception uh, or a social perception of women going from uh, dynastic Egypt, uh, so pharaonic Egypt, uh, to Greco-Roman Egypt. Uh, so when the Greeks and the Romans uh, brought their new values, uh, their new culture. And so the perception of women's body really changed uh, from uh, uh, ancient Egypt, from dynastic Egypt to Greco-Roman Egypt. Uh, and so I think that studying uh, women's bodies, women's re reproductive phases uh, in a, throughout this broad period and all these uh, changes uh, throughout this broad period uh, really shows uh, the cultural changes uh, in Egypt. Um, so moral, cultural and religious changes in Egypt. So it's a very complicated topic. Um, I think I reached uh, quite a, a few conclusions there from the general once so cultural changes, uh, moral changes to specific ones uh, regarding 
all the different uh, phases of uh, women's reproductions and how, how they were perceived and either celebrated or stigmatized or certainly. So we, we so I have really, I think I have raised many issues and each, each chapter can potentially have a, a spin-off book on its own, really. <laughs> so it's, a, I don't think it is a, a conclusive study. I think it is a study that shows how much you can do with an interdisciplinary approach and how much you can do by connecting dynastic Egypt with Greco-Roman Egypt and not just keeping these two periods separated, as nowadays it, it happens all the time, because dynastic Egypt tends to be studied by Egyptologists, Greco-Roman Egypt by classicists, and so I try to say no, <laughs> now we need mm -hmm. to study these two periods together because uh, otherwise you can't understand Greco-Roman Egypt without uh, knowing what happens in dynastic Egypt. Uh, you can't understand why there are certain laws, why there are certain uh, beliefs, religious beliefs, uh, especially at the domestic levels. Uh, certain traditions are really long-lasting. They last into, into the Roman and late antique period. So you need to have a longer yeah, perception, really. Mm. That's mm. really interesting. Are you saying about... Mm how people have approached pharaonic Egypt separate to Greco-Roman Egypt. Yes. This is something that, I suppose this actually relates to what I was talking with, talking about with Phil last week on the podcast, because Phil is at Leicester. He's looking at the Roman interaction with prehistoric monuments mm -hmm. in Rome, Britain. And there has always been this tendency in the past across the study of history and archaeology as you say to compartmentalize mm. how we approach it yes. so this is this period this is this period and there isn't that much of a crossover but actually as is always the case there's probably a fair bit of continuity and the monuments the the legislation the, the literature etc or whatever there's a lot of things that feed through from previous periods into later periods and as you yeah. say you can't really understand the later periods necessarily as well as you could do if you didn't look at the stuff that had come before that is yes. and and it's important to kind of understand i think the interaction between different periods of the past so as you're saying between the greco-roman approach to you might say the legacy of pharaonic egypt particularly as you're saying in, the, in relation to the lives of women definitely yes uh, of course there are uh, limits to this uh, you know lack of a uh, Compartments, compartment. Uh, it's a very difficult word, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, one of the main limits uh, is uh, that uh, there are lots of Egyptian languages and writings to learn. Mm. So, and uh, I'm not saying I'm an expert either. To be honest, I had really a sort of a working uh, knowledge of uh, of, uh, some, of Egyptian writing. So it's, it's really, I'm really, by that point of view, by the point of view of writing and docu written documents, are, I'm more of a classicist, so I'm much more confident when I read uh, Greek and Latin than when I read uh, Demotic. But um, obviously, I think that you need to try to approach uh, also Egyptian texts, uh, even if they are in translation, even if you if you don't know the, the, the language very well, but you still need to try mm. as much as possible 
to approach the the original source and uh, do your best really um so this is what blocked i think many classicists and uh, is, is still is still limiting many classicists so we we still we need to be to to be brave there mm. and we might make mistakes we can still you know have uh, experts in egyptian languages helping us i had my uh, phd supervisor that is no longer my phd supervisor now but um uh, Chabalada, who you know read my work and uh, you know gave me gave me advice when I commented on demotic texts. So there are ways to to bridge these gaps. So it's uh, it's important to do it. Mm. So one thing I'm quite interested in with very similarly to when Sophie was on the podcast talking about women in Republican Rome. Mm-hmm. Did you find any? examples of particular women in the text where you're able to trace their story or find out aspects of their lives then then you know actually because you're saying talking about the lives of everyday women were you actually Mm. able to look at particular women like actual particular individuals did any kind of come out of the the evidence for you or as you say because it's interdisciplinary so you're kind of combining evidence so was it quite difficult to actually get to the the individuals how did you find that well I think that you get the for Greco-Roman Egypt you really get the real individuals. You don't get a literary version of the individuals because you get their private letters. Mm. So the individual emerges without filters there. Or we can say at least uh, the only filters that emerge are the ones that uh, you know the individual puts to present himself or herself to her own relatives or to the person he or she is writing to. So it's a very genuine and direct way to approach individuals from the past and so quite unique. So I deal mainly with uh, this kind of sources rather than uh, uh, literary sources. Uh, So yes, these are my individuals. They are really everyday women, uh, non-elite uh, mainly non-elite women from Greco-Roman Egypt. Uh, most of the times so they are uh, uh, Greco-Egyptian women, so they they speak Greek and uh, sometimes they have Egyptian names. Uh, uh, sometimes they are, yeah, they express, uh, obviously I look at letters that deal with childbirth, for example, or coming of age or so. Uh, they sometimes they are, for example, uh, I don't know, giving birth. So they're mm. asking uh, to for, for their sister to come to assist them. Uh, so normal concerns, really, everyday concerns. Uh, so yeah, I think the individual emerges in quite a natural and uh, genuine way mm. in, in this in these documents. Going through, I mean, because obviously this kind of what the mm. book's about. But going through particularly the letters, do you get a sense of that a women's woman's position in Egyptian society, mm. albeit the pharaonic period or, or later, is quite different to the way it's been perceived in the past? Uh, people had ideas of what a woman's role in Greco-Roman slash pharaonic Egypt would have been. And actually, when you look at the letters, does it suggests that perhaps their role isn't quite what the stereotype, I suppose the best word, has usually been for that? Well, I think that uh, there wasn't really a sort of general idea of uh, what, uh, you know, the status of women was from dynastic Egypt to Greco-Roman Egypt. So 
I think that uh, classicists especially studied uh, these uh, documents from Greco-Roman Egypt and considered them uh, in the as a Greco-Roman documents, uh, uh, you know, in the wider Greco-Roman context. So, so they they found uh, you know examples of uh, Roman law within uh, Roman Egypt, uh, Roman Egyptian legal documents, uh, uh, which you know in a way it's right because the uh, Roman law was applied in Egypt, uh, but. Um, there are also local differences which need to be need to be considered um so i don't know whether uh, you know i have really moved things uh, radically in terms of uh, preconceptions uh, but i certainly gave lots of uh, small examples uh, about you know uh, understudied aspects like uh, you know coming of age was really was it really existing was there a ritual why there was a ritual to celebrate women during their coming of age and why there wasn't such a ritual before the greco-roman period so why it means that it wasn't that important probably mm-hmm. and why wasn't it important uh, coming of age because mm, when the fact that women became marriageable uh, wasn't particularly uh, important in dynastic Egypt, the women just married, uh, um, and they—it's not that there wasn't even a particularly elaborate rituals <laughs> to marry in uh, Roman e- in um, sorry in dynastic Egypt. Uh, they just entered the house; they just became uh, the owners, uh, the mistresses of the house. That was the title. That's it. While uh, in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt, uh, you know, there was—it um, was like the Roman marriage. So the woman entered the house. Uh, of the husband, and there was the exchange of the ring, uh, all these things. So, yeah, and there was a marriage contract, especially. Mm. So, something visible, really, mm. that you don't have before. So, there are big changes that you can see through the law, and uh, through the private letters as well, of course, because the private letters uh, reflect these uh, changes. For example, one of the things we we can see through the private letters are exposure of children. So uh, there is a, a famous letter where uh, a husband says to a wife, uh, if uh, it's a girl, expose her. Oh, yeah. Uh, exactly. So now I, I don't remember exactly the date, or uh, but uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it, we don't have, we don't know very much about the context of this letter, but we know that exposure of children was something that existed in Greco-Roman Egypt, while it's not attested in dynastic Egypt. So that's such a change; it's a, it's a huge change. And uh, uh, there is another uh, letter, a petition, uh, if I remember well, uh, where a woman is uh, allowed by the family of the husband to expose the child that she had from her husband in order to be able to remarry. Mm. So she gets rid of this child and then she's free to remarry. So how terrible is this? So the family of the husband is not interested in raising this child. They're just exposing it. That's it. Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, exposed children basically were left there either to die or to to be raised, uh, picked up, to be picked up by others and raised as slaves more probably. Because they, you know, uh, slaves were very expensive. So if you found a baby, you, you normally raised it. Uh, um, but I guess uh, p- children with disability were just uh, left to do, to die, really. Unless, yeah. yeah. Grim stuff. Yeah. Um, how did 
how did attitudes towards menstruation change then over time? Um, well, there are quite well, big shifts in, in that between Pharaonic Egypt to Greco-Roman Egypt. I would say that's the the, uh, the um, uh, context where I found the least changes. So, okay. interestingly enough, there is a sort of a, a similarity there between uh, uh, ancient Egyptian traditional beliefs about menstruation and uh, uh, Greek uh, beliefs about menstruation. So, both in Egypt and in Greece, it seems like uh, the blood of menstruation and childbirth was uh, somehow polluting and required a period of purification. And uh, so, for example, in Egypt, you find the story uh, in a papyrus called the Papyrus West Car. You find the story of uh, a woman giving birth. She gives birth to four uh, to future pharaohs, and. Uh, Basically, after giving birth, she has to rest for seven days. So in a sort of purification period is not. Um, yeah, it's used that the word the purification is actually used in here. Um, while uh, in, uh, in Greek uh, sources, we find, for example, the Lex Sacra for the access to the temples. So women cannot uh, have access to temples for um, 40 days sometimes sometimes for less it varies so after giving birth and also menstruation as i said to you is included in in these rules in in egypt again we have a childbirth and we have also menstruation we have a sort of a similar list of rules like the lex sacra in greece so you cannot have access to certain temples uh, during menstruation, it's uh, defined as a, an abomination. Uh, menstruation, mm-hmm. so something that is a bit taboo, <laughs> for especially for certain areas, uh, for certain specific cities uh, in Egypt. So, um, yeah, there is a sort of uh, similarity there, and I think that uh, it's not a it's not a coincidence. This similarity, the reason why menstruation, uh, so the blood, blood basically is considered a taboo both in Greece and in Egypt is because they're both very much connected to Near Eastern culture as well. Where And, you know, we can see also this in Jewish culture. So where in Near Eastern culture, we find since, you know, the earliest times in Sumerian literature, Hittite literature, we find this taboo of the blood. And uh, uh, so women were forbidden from entering to temples. Uh, and uh, there are also other similarities uh, with other uh, bodily fluids, uh, uh, like, for example, uh, uh, sperm or fluids uh, from um, diseases. Uh, so these are all connect- elements that are connected. And I also look at the Near Eastern sources in order to show this. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask about mm. that. You mentioned about the Sumerians, the Hittites. Yes. Are there other people studying similar themes in different periods, yes. uh, different geographical areas? And is there a kind of, do you, are you, are you in contact with them? Is there a kind of dialogue going on between different people studying in different periods? Because you were saying about you know, the tendency we have of compartmentalizing <laughs> yes. area, that word again, uh, history. And obviously, as you're saying, there's the benefits of looking at elements of continuity from these different periods but obviously you can't study everything but yeah. there are other people that are studying similar themes in different different periods and different areas so is there much of a dialogue going on between there isn't actually there isn't a much of a dialogue uh, i i am open <laughs> to this uh, and uh, to be honest i i think that uh, 
I mean, what would be needed is a, is a conference about it because uh, it's very difficult to just uh, meet someone that is... I mean, they are from a different discipline, really. So they're Near Eastern archaeologists or, uh, I mean, historians. So normally you don't find them in the same conference, unfortunately. I, I managed to, to meet a Near Eastern archaeologist that had similar interests uh, only once in a conference. So it's very difficult to, to meet them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, there, is a, there was a project a few years ago about uh, pollution and purity. And uh, I, the proceedings were very, very helpful for me because they gave me a sort of a general idea about this topic in uh, Greece, in Hittite culture, in a Jewish culture. So there was something done. I wasn't part of it uh, yet but it was really helpful so mm. just on that mm. actually going off on a slight tangent about uh, interconnectivity in yeah. interest in the ancient world a number of years ago you set up the the women in antiquity facebook group yes right? still yes. it's still going now as well yeah, it's, it's still going i'm a bit lazy <laughs> <laughs> i should uh, i should write post more things um, how many followers did you end up getting for it well i have about six thousand yeah. something yeah it's yeah. it got it's got a, a really big following but i found that, I found that quite interesting because i think that's very reflective of the desire now for people to look at aspects like you've looked at yourself yeah. of women in the ancient world particularly the lives of everyday women in the ancient world and i think it was going back to when i say sophie was on the podcast as well she was talking about populating the image that we have of the ancient world you know obviously in the past it's been very male dominated also very white as well but it's understanding now that there's a lot more people inhabiting these spaces when we picture them in our minds than traditionally thought since you started that group mm. do you find that there's been a kind of rising interest in that i mean there has even before that there was rising interest but do you were you quite surprised i suppose in some respects the reaction was, yeah. the, the group got i was very surprised and i felt the need to actually open a facebook group alongside the page so i have women in antiquity and women in antiquity network which is the facebook group and i think that is uh also very successful because uh, it actually gives a sort of chance to people to you know interact ask questions to each other so i post very rarely on women in antiquity network i set it up and uh, after basically a month it just uh, ran itself mm. it started running itself with people posting in it and uh, interacting so it's really nice to see that uh, you know i managed to create a sort of uh, place um, a virtual uh, a space where people can meet uh, while uh, women in antiquity is obviously i have to post the things in it but uh, they post a call for papers in the in the posts so and it was a way for me to also find the people all over the world because i i, I was invited to conferences thanks to it uh, i met uh, scholars uh, so it was a really an ideal platform and the scholars don't consider it. They are a bit, yeah, I think now they consider social media a lot more. Mm. But uh, I, when I created it five years ago, the situation was very different and everybody was a bit surprised that uh, I was putting so much uh, effort into a Facebook page. Mm. I've, got yeah. my, I've got a hand in my essay today for my PGCHE. Exactly, that's is, how it started. Yeah. Oh, really? Because oh, yes. my, my essay I've got a hand in today is me writing up my project where I did the assessment in Roman Britain where oh, people okay. had to do Twitter feeds 
of going through a event in Romana British history, yeah. how they would perceive it from if they were a Roman soldier or if oh. they were Julius Caesar or if they were a Gallic trader or whatever, mm. and, and you know, talking about how one could incorporate those things into academia. But it was interesting. I just, I've, I've read a few things on it and there is still seemingly this resistance to social media in, in across yeah. academia because it's not seen as being particularly academic and, and a couple of the students by and large the, the the feedback I got from the students was very positive on it but a few of them that were critical said that they didn't see how social media fits into the academic world which kind of raises some question more broadly about how perceptions of social media perhaps need to change in, in higher education and then that will filter down to the students a bit more. But anyway, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting exercise and just demonstrated the possibilities we have with social media in Definitely. higher education and what we can do with it. I mean as you found out, was it from surveying the students that joined us last year that one of the main ways they discovered Kent or discovered classics and archaeology at Kent was via Facebook. Via so Facebook, it, yes. It really shows yes. the the impact that you can have um, yes, not in a good definitely. way. Can be quite a negative way as well in, in other areas, but we won't go to that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, Brexit. <laughs> Brexit, exactly. No, um, yeah, I mean, I think that for admissions, we are really trying to use it as well. So, Facebook, but it's not always possible to reach out. Uh, I mean, we, you can reach to, you know, the relatives of uh, alumni, and but probably they would do that uh, themselves. They would talk about Kent to, you know, brothers and sisters. Um, mm-hmm. So, but, you know, we are trying, we, we, we're working, uh, you're working on the page, uh, the Facebook page of our department. So it's, uh, it's important to keep that profile. Mm-hmm. But I know that many, many lecturers and many students don't want to deal with social media. And so I think that it's important also not to force uh, people to say, OK, you can only find this content here. Mm. Uh, because pe- some people feel like they are cut out by this word because they don't want to engage with it. And so, yeah, it's important to keep other platforms like the ordinary blogs and yeah, the traditional yeah. And <laughs> the traditional blogs, and uh, yeah, and podcasts, and podcasts, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I clapped my hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just to quickly go back around then to to the book, or at least the, where the idea of the book came from. So that was based yeah. off your PhD, yes. correct? Yes. So how how did you come to well, yeah, how did you come to end up at Kent studying this this topic? What, what was the path that led you here? <laughs> well, um, I was at the University of Bologna, and uh, participated to an excavation in Egypt in Fayum. Uh, which is like big oasis. Mm. Uh, portrait fame as well. Uh, famous for the portraits, mm. yes, the funerary portraits. And uh, it's an incredible place because uh, basically it used to be a very fertile area, but then all of these ancient villages that were on the edges of this fertile area uh, where uh, uh, all of a sudden they became the, in a desertified i mean they were completely abandoned because of this oasis uh, uh, was um, changed in its size throughout history so um, and uh, this is because of the channel that uh, the irrigation channel that was connected to the nile sometimes was well maintained throughout history and sometimes it wasn't and so when it wasn't well maintained for uh, bad historical reasons ad- adverse historical reasons this oasis shrinked 
And uh, that's the reason why all of the ancient villages, uh, the ancient archaeological sites on the edge of this uh, Fayum region are so well preserved because uh, they they found themselves in the middle of the desert, but uh, they used to be in uh, very green areas before. So we went to this incredible site called Bakyas, and I had the chance to excavate a village where there were temples, uh, private houses, uh, uh, Roman baths. Uh, so I really saw the life of uh, the everyday life of people under my eyes. I could see just the coins, the pieces of pottery with inscriptions uh, everywhere I walked. <laughs> so it was just, uh, you know, the archaeologist's heaven, really. And uh, it was a, a difficult place where to, to be for a while because, you know, there were scorpions, <laughs> uh, horrible insects. But at the same time, is I always dream about going back there because it's, it was just incredible. So when you deal with something like this... Uh, you can't go back. Uh, you you just want to study something related to that site, uh, something related to that place. Find out who are the people that inhabited those houses. And uh, I had the, the chance. I was lucky enough to study in Bologna uh, amulets and statues uh, um, coming from uh, uh, some of these private houses and also some of the temples. And uh, I became more and more interested in a domestic religion, domestic rituals. And then I found out that there are, uh, in, in Egypt, uh, between the dynastic and the Greco-Roman period, there were rituals related to childbirth, uh, specifically related to childbirth. And so I became interested in uh, uh, women's childbirth, birth rituals. Uh, and uh, from that moment onwards, I decided that uh, I wanted to know more and to investigate more. And so I sent um, um, a PhD proposal a bit to many, many universities, but uh, here Kent uh, had the magical formula of a papyrologist, uh, Chabalada, who uh, was also interested in women because he studies uh, ethnic uh, names of women in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt, and uh, uh, Patty Baker, who is, studies uh, Greco-Roman medicine, and uh, she could really help me gaining a better knowledge of, uh, you know, the medical aspects of uh, childbirth and menstruation. And so it was just a magical combination. So I really decided to, to come here. And, uh, and it was really the right choice. <laughs> so, yeah. And now you're here on a, as, a, as a permanent lecturer. Okay. Yes, yes, um, I just stayed here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, um, yeah. So it was, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I would. Uh, there was a bit of luck there, and uh, obviously I also worked a lot for it. So, yeah, and uh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I also found a very good environment, uh, both with the colleagues at Kent, uh, but also all the conferences that uh, took place. Uh, throughout this year so I went to like 13 conferences mm -hmm. during my PhD and met lots of people so and I think that that really made the PhD um, the fact that you know giving papers at these conferences getting feedback from hundreds of people and yeah that is really fundamental for every PhD student to do you can't just stay in your room <laughs> to write in your work. You mm. need to interact and check uh, what's what's being written. Yeah. So. Goes back to what you were saying earlier about the the Facebook mm. group as well, though. So exactly. Yeah. There, yeah. Are, there are many ways now of, of finding out what's going on in the world. But you see, it's uh, so important to get out there and, and yeah. meet people and interact and see what other people are doing and get their thoughts on 
what you're what you're doing. I suppose sometimes, particularly when you're a PhD student, you can <laughs> way before that. I mean, you know, but you, it, sometimes you can be a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I want to put this out there yet because I don't want it to be criticized but you have to go through that you have to develop a thick skin and that's the best way of uh, improving improving what you're doing really sometimes i think that i was brave uh, more brave when i was a phd student than now because i i went with crazily prepared papers uh, to oxford and cambridge giving papers there and i I was like, and when I think about it now, I think, no, what did I do? But then they went well and they, I got very useful feedback. So maybe they were not the perfect papers, but mm. it, it was fundamental to go there and to meet the, you know, the big experts, uh, world experts. So it was great to have the guts to do that. And I was a PhD student as well. They knew that. So, you know, they were very... They encourage me rather than destroy me. That's the thing, isn't it? When you go to do a paper at a conference, you need to bear in mind, and the audience should always bear in mind as well, that what you're talking about is rarely a finished article. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's something that you're in the process of putting together, and that's why you're presenting it, because you want people's feedback, you want people's observations, and you're putting it out there with the intention of largely trying to improve it. So... Yeah, no, it's it's the best way of, or one of the best ways of, of, of improving, I think. But you're right. I mean, most uh, many PhD students are very scared to do that. So uh, also as well, it's just part. It's just you know, going out and talking in front of audiences. And yes, that's, that's a big part of it as well. Yes. Learning how to do that is is fundamental aspect of of progressing in academia, and I think it's just more widely. It's a good skill to develop as well. You know, it kind of builds just a sense of. I guess kind of a sense of nat- natural confidence to some degree. Well, we, uh, as a former PhD student in the UK, we're lucky because we got teaching experience from yeah. uh, in almost the beginning. Um, so that helps when you have to give papers because you're used to it. So Yeah, although sometimes I get a bit scared because when I taught, I taught Carl in his first year. Oh, yes. I get a bit worried now I'm going to spawn another Carl somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, oh, no. Just, just quickly then, because you're you're turning your attention now to figurines, right? That's that's the well, uh, yes. Well, I guess we could define them fig- as figurines because uh, it's a safer way to define them. Um, yeah, I'm writing an article on dolls now at the okay. moment, which are figurines in the end, and uh, I am trying to investigate the function and the meaning of gendered dolls. So. First, what are gendered dolls? So whether they are just dolls that represent women or they are dolls that, in my opinion, they are more than just that. They are those that are exclusively associated with women. So I'm trying to find a way to show how these dolls can be a proper gender indicator, for example, in archaeological context. So, uh, and to do that is very difficult because... Um, Sometimes you don't have a very clear archaeological context. So I'm really looking at a lot of data, data coming from uh, the Roman uh, period, uh, from the Greek world and from Egypt, uh, and I'm comparing them. And I'm also, by doing this, I'm also investigating the meaning of the term doll and whether it is uh, perceived in the same way. So Mm. this is, uh, this will, and I will show this in the article, so... Hopefully. <laughs> it's interesting, though, as you were saying, because the book, in, in some mm. respects, as, as well as most people's, 
PhDs end up being, it's it's really a step into a wider world. You say, you know, yeah. writing this article, but I imagine there's a tremendous amount more to say, as you, as you were saying earlier, on the various themes that you uh, approached in the book as well. That is kind of the tip of the iceberg for understanding. It is, yeah. Particularly the everyday life of women in in the ancient world, like broadly as well. That there's so much to to be explored there. It is, yes. There, there is so much, yes, and so. But uh, we we really need to also be pay attention to being rigorous in the way we approach sources. So being interdisciplinary doesn't mean to generalize on things, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it means uh, really struggling and uh, working hard to become a you know a rigorous ar- archaeologist or at least understanding archaeological reports and not relying on what someone else has written, and uh, at the same time. Uh, work on uh, literary sources and make sure that uh, they can you can find some sort of some way to compare them to archaeological sources so that's the real difficulty in what I do at least so um, but I know obviously that uh, being a a pure archaeologist is is very very difficult uh, in other ways because you have uh, that context and you have to really you know show what it means and uh, you have other people that might not agree with you so yeah each <laughs> each field has its difficulties really yeah. but, but yeah. say it's going it's going well though it's going well it's, yeah um yes. i'm i'm happy i'm having fun yes yeah. that's the most important thing as yes. long as you're still enjoying it and then you know you're doing the right thing yeah um so yeah i mean just just to finish then so the the, the book is now out the book is i available online yes it is available online and also as a hard copy i mean it's a it's yeah it's also basically divided into chapters so if a person is mainly interested in i don't know coming of age then you can get chapter one mm-hmm. uh, so that's how ebooks nowadays work yeah. and hard copies should be in all the possible libraries are i'm mm-hmm. trying to make sure that people know about it because you know these hard copies are very expensive oh yeah so, oh yeah <laughs> yes so yeah i i'm when people say i really want to read it i don't say buy it i say you know check that maybe you could find it in the library mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i cannot give copies uh, but uh, you know i cannot recommend a, a way to access it uh, without uh, you know yeah. getting broke <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and alongside that if anybody hasn't go mm. go away and check the the women in antiquity Facebook page as well. Yes. Join up to the community there. Yes, that would be great, actually. Yes. I mean, yeah, I, I will. Uh, I promise I will put more updates because <laughs> <laughs> I've been very lazy lately. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, Women in Antiquity Network as well. I, I will try to put more call for papers. Uh, and uh, also, if people are interested to really put call for papers uh, just things they're interested in so it could be very beneficial for everyone interested in women so yeah their publications as well yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) all right fantastic stuff thank you very much thank you (laughs) thanks to you